Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 certified in wine, and I'm an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And I am recovering from a little bit of a head cold, so I apologize if I sound a little off. Which he did not tell me until I came into this enclosed space with him. Well, you know, it's not COVID, so I figured, you know, I have have a little bit of wrangling power. Just just slight, just slight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But anyways, as we are now recovering and hopefully not catching his head cold i mean i'm um, on the tail end of it i feel better but i still sound a little hoarse and i, yeah. I cough a little bit but yeah. yeah and it's it's probably just because you were traveling recently so. yeah i went out to california the air is very dry there and then coming right back to virginia where the air is very moist on a plane on a plane and my throat was already kind of bothering me while i was in california because it was so dry so i'm pretty sure that's what that was i mean you're talking to somebody who literally every time i get on a plane i end up with some sort of throat irritation by the end of it yeah well you know if we never post again then it's because (laughs) you'll know why this was super covid (laughs) super covid (laughs) the sleeper hit (laughs) The, the new variant started with us oh god they called it the laid back lush strain. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Lord. Oh, oh, so now that we're thoroughly off the rails, yes. back to wine, beer, and spirits. Yes, particularly uh, the wine. Particularly the wine. And we're going to be talking about one of my personal favorite wine regions in the world, Burgundy, or as it's known locally, Burgundia. Yes. This is located in central France, known for its Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. It's about 12,000 square miles, located near Dijon as its closest major city, right on the uh, Saône River. And yes, they do make the mustard there. Yes, they do. It is actually Dijon, so if you've ever enjoyed Dijon mustard, this is the place, this is the city, this is where it happened. Burgundy itself, though, is a very unique region with a very unique terroir and a very unique history. One of the reasons why we love talking about this area so much, besides the fact that they make such amazing wines, is actually because of their contribution. And besides your addiction to Pinot Noir as a grape. I love Pinot Noir very much. Anywhere I can get it, I want to try it from any terroir. It's such an expressive grape. It really is able to bring out the uniqueness of any place that it's grown. And that's why I love it. And that happens to be one of the reasons why... Uh, this was the grape that kind of was the reason why terroir itself was discovered. So just very briefly, we'll probably have a a whole episode on the history of Burgundy, and we're going to have to be very specific because there are so many things that affect the history of this place. Yeah, I, I think we should probably kind of say on the onset of this episode, I, I know I normally will title these episodes an introduction to whatever thing we're talking about. This one in particular really is an introduction. This is meant to be kind of a flyover macro scale look at Burgundy because Burgundy is immensely complex, partially because of all the history that is here, partially because of the extremely varied soil types that are here, which we'll get to here in a second. Uh, There's just, there is a lot to Burgundy. So just know that we are leaving a lot out, but we will be revisiting in subsequent episodes, history, even I think soil types would actually be a really fun episode. That would be so much fun. Um, but yeah, so just know this is going to be kind of a flyover bird's eye view of Burgundy, but uh, we're still going to try and give you as much information to at least navigate the Burgundy Isle at your store as we can. That is actually our goal for almost every episode is just yeah. for you to be able to go in and be like, oh, I know how to read this bottle. 
Exactly. You know? Yeah. And and hopefully it also helps to prime you for the tasting. But going to that history, wine making was primarily brought to the region by the Romans in 51 BC. It was possible that the uh, Celts were producing wine before then, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really an established thing and not something that we really have a record of. And the Romans would have brought much more advanced wine making yeah. with them versus whatever the Celts would have been doing if they were making wine there at the time. Yeah, exactly. But once the vineyards were there for a very long time through a lot of different transitions of power, it ended up being taken and given to a bunch of monks, yes. the Benedictine and the Cister, uh, Cistercian. Cistercian. Yes. Yes. And these guys were obsessed with record keeping. Yes. And they were also obsessed with Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Um, we briefly discussed the history of this region when we were talking about uh, sparkling grapes because we were, we were talking about champagne and a lot of the technologies that allowed for it to become a thing also came from Burgundy. Yeah. Uh, from these very monks. But what happened was is they were growing Pinot Noir and they kept on noticing that no matter what they did, even if they had the exact same growing techniques, the exact same harvesting techniques, and the exact same fermentation techniques, the wine would taste different from different locations. Yeah. So they kept on taking more and more records, trying to figure out what could possibly be changing the flavor of this wine that was so clearly distinct from plot to plot. And so we see this kind of study bringing in a very rough resolution of the concept of terroir at that time called Climat. Yes. Now, Climat is a legal designation now that basically is a delineation or a delimitation of a particular parcel of land. But at the time, and the way that these plots, these parcels of lands were separated, were for their factors as they contributed to the quality of the Pinot Noir grown there. Yeah. So they are inextricably tied to the concept of terroir and this was the first time that we really saw this study being uh, developed. Yeah, if you listen to our wine history series, we kind of pointed out that the Romans, in a way, were, at least to our current knowledge, the founders of terroir in a way, mm-hmm. because they noticed that south-facing slopes and mm-hmm. things like that really improved the quality of the wine. But the Burgundian monks were the ones who really narrowed that down and started getting into, because they started studying the soils, if I remember correctly, as well as like these hyper-specific delineations between the vineyard plots and whatnot and how the wine tasted from each one and how different it could be, even just within, you know, a couple of square kilometers. Yeah. Like Michael said, very in-depth record-keeping, very in-depth study into this. So we really have the monks to thank for our current understanding of what uh, first, you know, Climat and then eventually Terroir has become. Yeah, and it's so interesting, their motivation for it, because... Oh, should we define Terroir real quick? Because I don't know if we've ever actually... Oh, no, we we have. We have, okay. Several times, but we should again, Yes, actually. It's been a while, at least. So, um... I'll do my little pitch of what terroir means, and then you can refine it, because that's that's the nature of laid-back lush. <laughs> <laughs> um, so terroir is a study of the specific factors within any plot of land in how its environmental factors will impact the grapes themselves, the eventual product. And this can range from the soil, its aspect, 
any other uh, environmental factors such as wind, moisture, rain, river, even something as simple as times and seasons of the year, whether or not there's an abundance of cover or or if the the ground is a specific color. Yeah. These are all things that will eventually show itself as an impact in the wine. Mm-hmm. And then you have your natural wine guys who are also saying it's about the yeasts. And, yeah. Uh, and so that also can be considered an aspect of terroir. Yeah. I mean, it's like Michael said, it's basically think of it as the microclimate of a vineyard. Yes. And how that is going to impact the wine that comes from that vineyard. Exactly. Because you can have two vineyards that are literally right next to each other. So let's say here in Virginia, Shenandoah Valley, you have a slope. One side faces north, the other side, let's say, faces southeast. Theoretically speaking, the southeast slope is going to produce better wine because it's going to have better sun exposure than the north-facing slope. That's just how nitty-gritty this can get, um, to kind of give you a rough example of yeah. terroir and, and what people mean when they are saying terroir. It can be a bit nebulous, but that's kind of how we view it here. And because of the fact that we now have this language because of the monks, This place, along with its unique terroir, is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Yes. Uh, Also has the 16th largest GDP. In In France or? In in France, I believe, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's that. Hmm. Now, the composition of Burgundy is going to be separated out into Chablis, Côte d'Or, Côte Chalonnais, and Maconnais. But before we go into what each one of those regions themselves have to offer, we wanted to talk about, in general, what you can define the climate of Burgundy to be. So what are we looking at, Gabe? So kind of the biggest uh, defining geological feature of Burgundy in terms of the vineyard sites is they tend primarily, at least in kind of the Cote d'Or down, to follow the Saône river i am so sorry to any french speakers if i am butchering that but this is going to give you a valley that runs particularly in the cote d'or kind of parallel to a mountain range called the massif central and this is great for grape growing because this gives you slopes mm. and as i just mentioned uh slopes are very important for terroir in particular the best vineyards in Burgundy, uh, this is kind of across Burgundy, except kind of in Chablis, where it's primarily south-facing slopes because Chablis is so far north. Um, but east-facing to southeast-facing slopes are going to be your best um, mid-slope, actually. So in the middle of these slopes are going yeah. to be your best vineyards. The valley floor also does have vineyards on it, but that's going to be much more of your very uh, larger-scale regional wines. Because the valley floor has a lot deeper soils and the soils are very fertile. And if you remember, I believe we talked about this way back in the climate episode, grapes don't really do well. Well, grapes for wine don't really do well if the soil's too fertile Mm -hmm. because they put too much energy into vine vigor is what it's called, which is essentially growing the vine itself, growing more leaves and shoots and whatnot instead of focusing on the grapes themselves. So you actually want less fertility. The slopes have less fertile soils. Great for what Burgundy is going for with their wines. You also have a very, we've mentioned this a couple times now, a very highly varied soil map of Burgundy. Mm -hmm. You know, every wine region is going to have some, for the most part, some 
variation in its soil across vineyards, but Burgundy is very well known. There are entire books that have been written about the different soil types ranging from even vineyard to vineyard in Burgundy. But in general, we are looking at soil types that were produced from fault lines that were formed during the Jurassic period as this mountain range, the Massif Central, was kind of moving up and the river valley was, you know, getting all this sediment in. There's a lot of sediment in the soil. So primarily kind of across Burgundy, you can roughly say there's a lot of marl, which is um, a very mineral dense, varied composition wise sediment, clay and limestone. Yeah, is a lot of what you're going to be finding here. A lot of it from uh, invertebrates from this Jurassic period decomposing into that limestone in particular, which is very evident in the wine itself. Yes. Like you can taste the minerality that comes off of this, which means you're drinking dinosaurs and um, acidity. Yeah. Uh, these limestone soils in general, limestone soils and chalky soils tend to produce more acidic wines. So I guess, I guess our story here is that, you know, God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Specifically for winemaking. Yeah. Yeah. Man Mm -hmm. creates wine out of dinosaurs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have this, we have this wonderful soil. Uh, What are we talking about as far as the climate itself? What can we kind of define this region as being? So overall, our climate's going to be a cool to a moderate continental cool up in the Chablis area. And as you go more south, it warms up but overall continental. The risk factors in Burgundy from a climate perspective tend to be rain, particularly for Pinot Noir. Pinot is a very finicky grape and it has very thin skins. It's and very so fragile. It's Yes, and it's very susceptible to rot. And rain is very good for giving <laughs> rot. Um, rain can also be an issue, and this is something that does happen in Burgundy, during the budding and flowering portion of the vine's life cycle. Because if it rains too hard, it can knock the flowers yeah. off, and then you will never get grapes that set from that because the grape berries come from those flowers. So that is kind of the primary issue uh, in most of Burgundy, but we also have the problem of late frosts. Burgundy is far enough north that you know, frost, particularly in Chablis, can extend into even May. Mm-hmm. And Pinot Noir is an early budding. Well, uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir both are early budding varieties. So that is actually a really big risk. They have a lot of mitigating factors, such as like Bordeaux candles, sprinklers, stuff like that to help guard against this now. Technology has helped. But you can still lose a whole crop in Burgundy if you get a late enough frost uh, and you're in the wrong area. Uh, this can also, uh, going back to the slopes and hillsides, that can be a mitigating factor because cool air, you probably know, goes down. So if you have vineyards that are mid-slope, they're less likely to have pockets of cool air versus the valley floor where that cool air is going to collect and then potentially you know, get frost on your grapes. which can, again, really destroy the buds. There's also the problem in Burgundy of hailstorms, particularly during the summer. That should probably be self-evident as to why that's a bad thing. So just uh, know that Burgundy is not the easiest place to farm in the world, Um, but it does produce some excellent wines from that. 
And that actually brings us to a very interesting thing about Burgundy. Another unique factor of this region is the fact that it's less to do about producers as it is about the farmers themselves. Yeah. The yeah. farmers are the people that we're paying attention to. And and some of them are also producers. Oh, yeah. 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 But when you when you think about Burgundy, it's it's an interesting cultural thing there that it's not about the producer who may or may not be involved at the vineyard at all. It's about the farmer. The farmer is going to be the one that does all of this. Yeah. So let's get into that a little bit. There is a term called negociant that you might or might not have heard of if you're familiar with wine. A negociant house is essentially a buyer of grapes. We mentioned this, I believe, in the Bordeaux episode, and I think we also mentioned in the French wine law episode, but Napoleon put in some inheritance laws that are still on the books. Uh, They're very difficult to get rid of, even though some people want to get rid of them. It's very hard in the French legal system to do so. Essentially, these inheritance laws state that inheritance must be evenly divided amongst all children of a family. That includes grapevines that were owned at the time. Okay, so if you had four rows of grapes Mm -hmm. and you had four children... They get a row. Each one would get a row. And then they have children, and then the row gets divided between the children. Oh. So you can see... What are we at? Like a hundred-something-odd years after Napoleon... People now own fractions of vineyards, even like a certain number of vines in a row. It's gotten a little bit out of hand. Okay, so we have these parcels of land, these clamots that are now divided between so many owners who may not even be all too aware of each other or even living in the same place. Yeah. What do they do in order to actually make that functional? Well, so going back to negociants, that is where the negociant steps in and says, hey, you don't really have enough grapes to even think about making a viable product. Mm -hmm. You know, you might get two casks worth and it's more money to ship that out and process that than it would be to just sell us your grapes and we will combine the grapes from either a vineyard or a region and we will take care of all the winemaking and everything. We're just going to take the grapes off your hands, essentially. So... This has become very popular in Burgundy. If you have ever seen the brand Louis Jadot, they operate in Burgundy and Beaujolais. Point of note on Beaujolais, we will not be talking about Beaujolais in this episode. Um, That's not true, Michael. There is good in Beaujolais. There is. You you opened my eyes to it, but I'm angry about it. (laughs) Um, But the region of Beaujolais is so distinct now from the rest of Burgundy. It is technically a part of Burgundy, but it's really not. The soil composition is very different. Their soils are much more granitic, and there's just there's a lot. So we're not going to get into them here. That could be its own episode. Yeah. Saying all that to say, Louis Jadot operates in Burgundy and Beaujolais. If you've seen them, they are the biggest negociant house in Burgundy. They make pretty solid wines. I would recommend them, especially for the price that you pay. But again, so a negociant can come into a vineyard, again, a village, a commune, even just the whole region, and just buy grapes and sell it under their own brand. But you do have some families that have stayed intact who kind of pool their vineyard plots together, whatever they do have, and produce, albeit normally very small, but um, very normally excellent wines. Mm. That also has to do with the price of Burgundy. 
Burgundian wine is normally very expensive. There is a range. In my opinion, uh, a lot of Burgundy is overpriced. But um, like that's, I said, there's a range that that's that'll be my hot take for the episode because I have to have one. It, these are some of the most expensive wines in the world. If you've ever heard of Romani Conti, that's out of Burgundy. But you also have a lot of things that'll come from like the villages or the negociants. Amazing quality. Probably not compared three hundred dollars, but mm, you can get them for for a solid 50 and, and still be yeah, at, at like good. the village level. Yeah. Now, interesting enough, if you are uh, a fan of Pinot Noir but don't want to shell out that amount of money, you do have the option of Oregon. The Willamette Valley there actually has the same glacial cuttings. The wines are different, though. The wines are very different, but, you know, it's a, it's a different expression, different, yeah. different region. A lot of these are also going to be single grape. You don't get as many blends. And so not really any. Yeah, you, you don't get really any blends. Maybe at the like Bourgogne Rouge or Bourgogne Blanc yeah. level, but that's still I'm pretty sure those had to be hundred percent Pinot Noir Chardonnay. Exactly. And that kind of brings us to these kind of main grapes. Now, what sort of things can we expect from something like Pinot Noir? Pinot Noir, it's very unique. Whereas a lot of other wines try to be as fruity as possible, or the, the focus is on the tannins themselves. Although Pinot Noir can have a, an okay tannin structure, it's not really what you're going for. It's supposed yeah. to be more of um, just a, a texture in the background. Yeah, I mean, remember, those are thin skins, so there really just isn't enough to be given in the first place. It's not Cabernet Sauvignon. And what a lot of younger Pinot Noirs are going to show you is going to be this kind of like bright cherry flavor. You can even get a little bit of herbaceousness off of them, mm -hmm. but they quickly will develop elements of, of earthy or mushroomy notes. And those are more the notes that people in Burgundy are kind of going for. They want yeah. that complex mineral forested mycelial bouquet mm -hmm. to just arrest your palate. Yeah. Something to point out for Pinot Noir, particularly if you are looking to age wines, is Pinot Noir does tend to develop rather quickly mm -hmm. just as a grape. That doesn't mean that it can't go for longer, it continued to develop, but just know that even very young Pinots can start showing these tertiary, mushroomy, earthy notes. Yeah. Even from areas outside of Burgundy. And a lot of that time frame for when the prime level of aging is going to occur is determined by the terroir. That's mm -hmm. why... In winemaking. Yeah, in winemaking. That's why it is such a complex and very specific group of climats that are designated with the various legal classifications that we'll be getting to in a second. Yeah. Pinot Noir, though, it is 30% or 34% of what is grown in the region, 29% of overall wine production. And you're typically going to know that it's in the bottle, even at the very base level, because it will say that it is a Bourgogne Rouge. If it's Bourgogne and it's red, it's probably Pinot Noir. It can also be fairly spicy. You're going to get between like brick or a bright red as far as the color is concerned. Mm -hmm. um, and a very light body. So if you have a Pinot Noir and it has a heavy body, it's not Pinot Noir. Well, it, some of the ones from New Zealand can be a little bit more viscous, but that's more of a ripeness thing than a... Yeah, no, I'm taking shots at the Wagner family right now. Well, uh, ooh, yeah. <laughs> we're calling out some names. Well, well they have this, this wine called Mayomi that everybody was obsessed with. And I've tried it. I yeah. was I was not 
happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, and if you just want like a good red blend, it's a good red blend, but it's very thick and very jammy. And it's, yes. It's not, it's not very California. Uh, but then our other largest produced wine inside of the Burgundy region is Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. This is going to be 48% of the vines, 68% of general production. Marl tends to make it more of a delicate and floral. You know, this is a wine that most of our listeners, I believe, have had at this point. Typically, yeah. though, uh, if you... It's like everybody's first white, I feel like. Yeah. That or Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. And really, the wines that are coming out of Burgundy, they're going to be more along the lines of, of a Sauvignon Blanc than they are your typical California that... heavily oaked Chardonnay. Well, that depends on two things. The region, or sub-region, I should mm-hmm. say, and the producer. Yeah. And the quality level. But uh, mm-hmm. you will probably never have a buttery Chardonnay from Burgundy. Not necessarily. Oh, dear. One oh, of, no. What did you come across? Well, so one of the wines that I tried during my level three, I believe, was a uh, Macon Village, I want to say, Chardonnay. And I called it as a Californian Chardonnay. No kidding. Yeah. Um, maybe buttery wouldn't be the right word to describe it, but it definitely underwent the full regimen of barrel, MLF, or malolactic fermentation slash conversion, and lees stirring. Like, it had the whole gamut. Wow. Um, Burgundy actually pioneered these techniques. California did not invent the complex Chardonnay yeah. um, that actually came from Burgundy. But they are overall a little bit more restrained. That also goes to the Pinot Noir. This is yeah. still old world, and it's a lot cooler than a lot of new world sites. So these wines are more restrained, but the Chardonnay can still be very complex and uh, even spicy from barrel aging. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, though. You have this idea where you're adding complexity to the grape as opposed to over like your buttercream, yeah. your uh, your butter knife, that yeah. sort of thing. You're not yeah. going to get it to that extent. Yeah. They're not going for that one note exactly. kind of Chardonnay. Yeah. And then it's also because of the growing region itself. Because it tends to be a bit cooler, you're going to get a bit more of that acidity out of the grape. Mm -hmm. That's going to cause it to be a little bit more on the refreshing side than the kind of viscous, rich side of things. Yeah. So, you know, you're still going to get your your apple in there. You're also going to probably get some tangerine. And then a lot of floral notes from that marl and a bit more of that uh, refreshing acidity simply because of how cool the region is. Yeah. And I believe our main grower for this would be up in the north, Chablis. Um, It depends. Well, I mean, Chablis is pretty much exclusively mm-hmm. Chardonnay. I think they grow a little bit of Pinot, but yeah. they're overwhelmingly going to be a Chardonnay producer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, if you are going to more of the southerly regions, because you have Chablis up at top, then you have Cote d'Or, then you have, uh, then you have, oh gosh, Chalonnay, mm-hmm. uh, and then you have Maconnay. So the further south you get, the more ripe those flavors are going to present themselves. Exactly. So think like going from green apples down to even tropical fruits for the Maconnay. Yeah. The more high quality Maconnay. Especially as things get a little hotter. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll have more and more Chardonnays that are uh, mm-hmm. that are mistakable for California. So something to point out for the wines of Burgundy overall is particularly your higher quality wines are very much age worthy wines. So um, maybe not quite the village level, but like your Premier and Grand Cru's, which mm-hmm. we'll get into those here in a second are typically going to be fit for at least a couple of years, particularly some of the Chardonnays are some of the longest-lived wines in terms of aging potential in general. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been an issue, I believe, in the past like 
10 to 15 years where the Chardonnays, for some reason, are prematurely oxidizing. Interesting. Um, yeah. And nobody has been able, as far as I know, to pin down what is causing it. They've oh, no. checked the corks. They've checked the production facilities. Like nothing has really changed. The most accepted theory is something with climate change and the climate is affecting how these grapes are aging. Um, but just be aware if you do buy a Burgundian Chardonnay, it might be a good if you're able to afford something of that quality anyway probably good to pick up another bottle just to kind of have as you know a metric that you can pull out a couple years and make sure it is aging properly yeah but uh that being said chardonnay pinot noir are two main grapes but we do have two very much smaller plantings but i do believe the white grape of these two is increasing that's going to be gamay and aligote aligote i actually have had an aligote from burgundy uh once oh really yeah it was from a course I did through work. Um, I don't remember exactly which course it was, but it was a it was a solid white. Aligote tends to be very floral, refreshing, pretty clean, but it's not allowed in any of the official appellations to my yeah. knowledge. But it is still grown there. I believe they, they can put Burgundy on the label, but just not any of the like official like Bourgogne Blanc or anything yeah. like that. I think they also have uh, Sauvignon Blanc. They do a little bit, yeah. And uh, what was the other one that they have? Uh, Pinot Gris, they also have. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. But it's it's in much smaller amounts than Gamay or Aligote. Yeah. Uh, and even. even those are very small yeah. vineyard holdings. Oh, gosh. It was yeah. like, it's like 6% is is those yeah. two. Like, yeah. That's less than 10%. And those are going to be, in general, I mean, you're not going to plant those in a Grand Cru vineyard. That's just business suicide. Um, yeah. So... They're going to be also planted in some of the less desirable vineyard areas, so do know that as well. So now now that you guys kind of have an idea of a little bit of the climate and just the grapes that we're working with, primarily Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but also these other ones in a smaller amount, we're not going to really talk about them too much. From our purposes here on out, just think Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Exactly. We want to talk to you now about the classifications and what those mean, specifically where you can expect them and what you can expect from them. Yes. Uh, so first off, we have our regional wines. Mm-hmm. So that is going to be uh, Bourgogne Rouge and Bourgogne Blanc. Uh, what can you tell me about those? So these are going to be the very, very base level for Burgundy. So these can have grapes that were sourced from literally anywhere in the official Burgundy designations. So it doesn't matter if it's coming from Cote d'Or and Maconnet or nope. it can it can be collected from any yeah. combination yeah. anywhere in the in the region of Burgundy. Yep. So these are going to be from your less prestigious climats. Mm-hmm. Um, again, just to reinforce the idea, climats are what is assigned the appellation status. Whereas in Bordeaux, it's the producer normally, and in a lot of other regions in France, it's kind of like a more general sense of like, oh, this village holds this. It's the climats themselves that are assigned these designations. I mean, these are right up against each other. Yeah. So you have that kind of general thing, and these can range from being either fairly good, Mm -hmm. I would say uh, comparable even to the village wines in some cases to being a literal waste of money. 
It really just depends, but they are also going to be on the cheaper side, so less risk, mm-hmm. possibility of reward. The uh, the Louis Jadot, I have had their Bourgogne Rouge, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, again, is going to be very basic, but it's a solid wine. I believe yeah. it's only like $15 or something like that. Yeah, if you're just wanting to try and get kind of like a general idea of what structure that they go for in Burgundy, I think that's a, a decent starting place. Yeah. It's not going to be exemplary. But it will be, at the very least, an introduction. Yeah. The Cliff Notes version. (laughs) Exactly. Um, There are two kind of sub-regional terms I want to discuss just real quick. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you see uh, Village on a wine, particularly like Macomb Village, that's going to still be a regional thing. Uh, For Macomb Village in particular, that means that you can blend across the Village level of grapes in Macomb or the Macronai region and produce a wine from that. We also have the Bourgogne Eau Côte de Nuit and the Bourgogne Eau Côte de Bonne. So that is a kind of like higher than Bourgogne Rouge designation of the Côte d'Or region. Mm -hmm. And those can be grapes that are sourced from their respective Côte de Nuit, Côte de Bonne, which we'll get into the distinction there in a second. Yeah, and there is a difference between the Eau de Côtes. Mm -hmm. Uh, than there is the actual places. And that yes. has to do with elevation. We will talk about that. Yes. Uh, so so we do have those regional wines, though, which I believe also uh, includes Cremant de Bergeron, which is going to be our... Cremant de what? Cremant de Bergeron. I thought it was Cremant de Bourgogne. Oh, God. Yeah, no, that, that was me. Um, <laughs> Cremant de Bourgogne. Uh, so that's going to be your sparkling out of Burgundy which I cannot recommend enough. Mm-hmm. I love Cremant de Bourgogne, even if mm-hmm. I can't pronounce it. And um, it's a normally a pretty good value. Oh, wonderful well. value. Wonderful yeah. value. Done method traditional. You can hear more about that in our, uh, our sparkling wines episode. Yes. But definitely, you know, fantastic stuff. And that's going to be about 52% mm-hmm. of what is produced throughout. Now, going down to about 37%, we have our village wines, yes, uh, which we were just talking about. So this is not to be confused with the village labeling term, Mm -hmm. because remember, that's a regional. So when you see a village name on the bottle, that is the village slash commune is another uh, word for this. It's coming from that specific area. So that's going to be a collection of vineyards that's more specific than your regional appellations. And that only is a, it's a fairly short list, actually. There are, there are 44 villages. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be going into their specific names. Yeah. Uh, you can look up those names for yourself. We're going to just be talking about the, the more general areas. Mm-hmm. But when you see something that does say, you know, the village of uh, an area, look it up and you can see it. We're going to try and release a list probably on our Twitter at Laidback Lush, if you haven't already done so, please do follow us both on Instagram and Twitter mm-hmm. in order to stay up to date with us. I could probably whip up some slides for Instagram as well. Yeah, just a little thing um, to kind of help you guys to navigate. And all these villages are unique in and of themselves. Yeah. Now, this, again, not the village. It is a village. So mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be 37% of the village wines. There are 44 different villages distributed throughout all these different groups. Mm-hmm. It can be amazing. It can be not so amazing, but it's typically going to be exemplary of the specific village where it's grown. And the more specific thing is going to be when you get to our next little group. So 10% of the wine that is produced in about 640 different Premier Crew plots is going to be Premier Crew. Yes. So uh, the Premier Crew 
will be a very uh, prestigious vineyard climat, as will uh, Grand Cru be. But for Premier Cru, how you will be able to identify it on a label, it will have the village and the vineyard name. Mm-hmm. Again, Google will be your best friend here because we didn't want to throw 44 uh, very elaborate French names at you that you'll forget in two, yeah. 10 seconds. Um, but uh, you can go into the different regions that we're going to talk about here in a second and look at what the Premier and the Grand Cru's are. But just know that Premier Cru and how you can distinguish it on the label. And labels will also normally have Premier Cru or... Uh, one E-R. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, because it means um, first growth. Yeah. One or Cru. Yes. So that will also be a labeling term that you might see to help you distinguish this as a Premier Cru. This is really when you start getting into the stuff that's going to be more beautifully complex. Mm-hmm. And expensive. And very expensive. Yes. yes. And these will also range in price, but th- this is you're you're going to be spending money if this is something yeah. that you want to try. Yeah. And then we have the one percent. Now you have to understand when we're talking about these climats, when we're talking about these parcels of land, the village plots are literally bordered with the premier crew plots, and those are literally bordered with the last of our classifications, which is grand crew. And these will be named after their specific crew. This is 1% of the entire region. 60% of it is, is Pinot Noir. Yeah. So we do have some significant names there, but this is going to be the most prestigious areas. It's typically, like Gabe was saying, that mid-slope plot mm-hmm. that has the perfect combination of drainage and sun exposure. And typically has the southeast normally. Yeah. And it also has the right amount of slope to where you're not dealing with as much surface runoff as you would in the places above it. And you're also not talking about as much moisture or nutrition, actually, the the soil richness as that lower portion. Yeah. It's the perfect balance. Yeah, I, I was gonna say this is gonna be your kind of the perfect uh as perfect as nature is gonna get at least yeah. area. Because uh, even in these vineyards, vintage variation in Burgundy is just a big factor. As I mentioned, those climate hazards really can impact just the whole region. But these are as good as you're going to get in terms of grape growing. Yeah. And I mean, these are bold. These are powerful. Yeah. They're complex. They're typically made for cellaring. And it's considered the epitome of Pinot Noir in the world. Yeah. By pretty much everybody who's a nerd about wine. Exactly. Yeah. So. Which it's always fun when you start hearing actual nerds of, of, you know, who know wine and who know terroir, who have actually studied this region, because there's just so much there that you can start digging into. Some significant names, Latache, Montrachet, Romani Conti, those are going to be your ones that are going for literally thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these, these are not to be uh, overlooked. Yes. Or... To be overlooked, depending on your budget. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've gone. That's f- out. That's out. That's out. <laughs> so we've gone now from our village wines, which are going to be more fresh and fruity with little to no oak, to our village wines, um, our Premier crew, and now our Grand crew, uh, which are going to be that 1%. Now, not all of this is going to be distributed evenly. They are all very different regions. And so going, I want to say to Chablis, we're talking more about our unoaked, lean, austere Chardonnays. What more can you kind of tell me about the influences of this area? 
Well, I can tell you that this influenced my taste in Chardonnay a lot. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Chablis is actually my favorite uh, region in Burgundy. I fact. didn't know that. Yeah. What an interesting thing for me to learn just now. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you so much for acknowledging that you just now learned this fact about me. Yes, indeed. <laughs> in the this moment. syntax. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, as Michael said, uh, Chablis, because of how north this appellation is it's not even connected to the rest of burgundy it's not it's actually closer in both soil composition and distance to uh champagne oh yes oh that explains a lot of the stuff that you're talking about with the frosts Mm -hmm. yes so as you said this is going to be a much more lean and austere high acid style of chardonnay Mm. particularly at that base level just the regular chablis level the vineyard area here follows the Serienne River. Again, uh, apologies to the French speakers out there that might stumble upon this. The best sites are going to be on your south-facing slopes because that's where the most sunlight for ripeness is going to come in. I don't remember if Chablis has any Grand Cru, but I do know for sure that they have some Premier Cru vineyards because I have had one, and it was delicious. They they actually have a... Um interesting legal system they have their own labeling system so instead of it being grand cru premier cru uh village and regional they do have the premier cru but it it goes petit chablis chablis premier cru and then grand cru chablis so they they it's just very very different a lot of the same ideas as the rest of Burgonia, but just very slightly different Mm -hmm. since it is kind of a different region almost yeah so as i said this is actually going to be uh much closer to well not much but it's going to be closer technically to champagne than the rest of the heart of burgundy in the Cote d'Or region again frost big issue here this region is much more as i said in soil composition similar to champagne Uh, that's going to be a lot of what's called kimmeridgian limestone soil so that's a lot of these old invertebrate shell broken down so into cool. dust over time almost a chalky kind of texture very light colored soil uh so you know our premier and grand cru sites are going to have a lot of that kind of soil particularly for reflecting the sunlight with mm. that lighter color back onto the grapes so they can actually get ripe enough to not be as austere as some of the base level wines when you get up into the Premier crew and the Grand Cru levels in Chablis, uh, like I said, I've had a Premier crew. It was delicious. Oh, it I'm was so jealous. I've never had a Premier crew from Chablis. Well, it's from Naked Wines. Uh, I don't know if it's still in stock, but it was delicious. Uh, and it was it was definitely a, a much more restrained style than a lot of people who drink at least New World Chardonnays are probably going to be used to. But compared to some other Chablis that I've had, it was very... Um, it was just really well balanced. Like it, it had enough ripeness in the fruit that it was you know, a very good wine to sip on by itself, but it was still very high acid, very kind of bracing almost. It was just, it was very nice. I drank it while I watched Pad of Labor 2, just <laughs> an old anime movie. Oh my God. Uh, from I think the 80s or the early 90s. So if that, if that, that tells you what I do in my spare time. I, I gotta actually watch that. Was it any good? Should I should I check it out? I own it. We can watch it. We should do that. Yeah. Um, do you happen to remember if it was like Montemilieu or Cote de Lachey or Fourchamé? Um, give me just a second. 
I'm fantastically jealous of your experience with that wine. That is yeah. absolutely fantastic. And I have it pulled up. Uh, so I got it from Naked Wines. I know I talk about Naked Wines all the time. Again, not sponsored. Please sponsor us if you hear this. Um, but it was yeah. But it was the Benjamin Laroche Chablis Premier Cru Vau Ligno 2018. Normally a $55 bottle of wine that I snagged for 24 with the angel discount. So, lucked out there. You're such an angel, Gabe. Like such an angel. Like a star. <laughs> and speaking of our other little angels. Yes, the petite Chablis. Mm. Now, this is a term basically for kind of the bottom rung of the hierarchy ladder in Chablis. These are going to be primarily like your north-facing vineyards or the vineyards that just aren't very uh, desirable. I wouldn't say steer clear because it's still probably going to be at least well-made, but these are not going to be the best of what the region can showcase. Yeah, exactly. It's like, mm, well, it does conclude the Star Wars, but it wasn't episode five. <laughs> I'm just going to keep my sequel trilogy opinions to myself here. Mm -mm. Did you not like any of the Star Wars? Oh, I liked the original trilogy. Yeah, four, five, and six. Yeah. yeah. But even everybody knows that six isn't actually all that good. I, I, it was, you know, better what? Again, than the prequels. I'm, I'm going again. I'm going to. I will coax my... out your opinions, Gabe. <laughs> that, that's a different podcast. Have, a, have an opinion. <laughs> I demand that we talk about the wines of Kashmir. The Disney trilogy was garbage. Anyway. So moving on from Chablis with, you know, you have your Petit Chablis, very young style, light citrus, all the way up to your Grand Cru, which they age well. You're going to get like floral honey notes, your flinty acidity from them. Mm -hmm. We move on to kind of the heart of yeah. Burgundy itself, which is a place called Cote d'Or or the Golden Slopes, which possibly had to do with their walnut trees uh, turning a bright golden yellow color during the fall. There um, is another theory, actually. Is it because of how much money that they make off the place? Well, no, there's a different, uh, potentially a different uh, translation or mm. what it originally came from uh, would be Cote d'Orient, which is because it faces east towards the Orient. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. But, but Golden Slope kind of seems to be the more consensus seems to be more around that yeah and it's and it's easy to for me at least to think about it because this also happens to be where all the grand crew yes uh, climats are mm -hmm. so this is the only place it happens but yeah. this place is defined as two subregions. so you have cote de nuit or the slopes of night mm -hmm. and cote de bone meaning the slopes of bone both of these are going to be uh, unique in among themselves, and they're also, they have another region right on top of them, which is going to be the Haute-Côte-de-Nuit, uh, and Haute-Côte-de-Bone. Haute yes. And that's literally just the geographically highest place on those slopes. Yes. So they're but not the most prestigious vineyard no. sites. No, they are not. As we discussed, it's going to be that mid-slope section that's going to now house all of the Grand Cru of yes. Burgundy in these two regions. And above that is actually considered much less desirable, more mm -hmm. on the level of like your village wines. Yes. Both of these places, though, are fantastic. So it runs along the uh, Massif Central. What can you tell me about Cote de Nuit? Uh, so just for orientation, say Cote de Nuit is the more northerly part mm -hmm. of the Cote d'Or. So and the closest Cote... to Dijon. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then Cote de Bone is going to be 
you know, attached, but the southern half, essentially, of the Cote d'Or. As Michael said, this is going to be kind of the heart of Burgundy. Most of the very prestigious appellations are going to be here. Romanet Conti, as Michael mentioned earlier, is mm-hmm. uh, a vineyard that produces some of the most, if not the most expensive wines in the entire world. That is located in the Cote de Nuit. This is a Pinot Noir appellation. So Cote de Nuit, in general, is going to be the more renowned for Pinot Noir. Cote de Bone has Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but it is more known for its Chardonnay. Yeah. So to put that in perspective, all the Pinot Noir Grand Cru's in the Cote d'Or are in Cote de Nuit, except for one. And then all of the Chardonnay Grand Cru's are going to be in the Cote de Bone, except for one. And obviously, the exception is going to be in the respective opposite of that region. Precisely. So this is where you're going to find a large part of this soil variation that we were talking about earlier. This is where the monks really were mapping out terroir and how the soils affect things. This is where a lot of folding happened during the uh, Jurassic period. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of fractures and complicated soil mapping going on in this part of Burgundy in particular. It happens all throughout Burgundy, but here in particular, it gets very in-depth. I think folding is is the correct visualization or, or a very illustrative way of thinking about how these soils came together because you did have all of these different soils literally being pressed into each other and folded over each other. So if you can think of it in terms of like sheets of paper being crumpled together, that's how complex the soil can become. And that's why yeah. these climats are so close to one another. Yep. Uh, so with Cote Nui, we are looking at 80% of Pinot Noir. Like I said, we can have thousands of dollars being spent on this stuff. Oh, easily. Easily. Yeah. Um, but this is where you're going to get that big, bold, beautiful flavor, the black currant, the cherry, the fresh red fruits, earthy mushroom, and spice. That's going to be coming from uh, Cote de Nuit. And then from Cote de Bone, you can be looking at more of their whites, white flower, dried grasses, fresh apple, pear, hazelnut, and for their reds, more of like a, a plum, cherry stone, white tobacco, uh, more more earthy. Yeah. And good acidity, but typically not the same acidity that you're going to be getting out of Cote de Nuit. Yes. Um, and so those both open rolling hills, amazing wine, mm-hmm. the most prestigious in the world. Then we have below that geographically, unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about with Cote d'Or. No. Nope. We have Cote Chalonnet, which is, again, your slopes of Chalonnet. Here, we do not have any of the Grand Cru, like we mentioned. What sort of things can you tell me about this place? Well, we do have Premier Cru. Uh, mm-hmm. So there is that. But as you said, no Grand Cru. So Cochalonese is going to be both Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, as with the rest of Burgundy. From what I've seen, a lot more focus seems to be on the Chardonnay here, mainly just because the prestige of Pinot Noir and the Cote d'Or is so high. It's hard to you know compete with that. Funny this, enough, uh, this place was actually first designated by the Dukes for peasants. Hmm. That's actually not really surprising, so it kind of goes into what I was about to get into. Stylistically, this is going to be similar to the Cote d'Or, but this is not going to be as high quality as the mm. Cote d'Or. That is due to the Cote Chalonnais having a higher altitude. Now, you might hear that and think, wait a minute, I thought high altitude was good for wine. Isn't that why Malbec is doing so well in Argentina? Yes. However, 
you kind of got to know what altitude does to wine and why it matters and is important in certain regions. So altitude cools things off, right? In a place like Argentina, that's great because Argentina is a desert and extremely hot and you couldn't grow grapes otherwise. In Burgundy, this is not a good thing because Burgundy, as we've already said, it's fairly north. Yeah. So it's already fairly cool. So when you get even cooler from this altitude in the Cote Chalonais, it slows down the ripening and it pushes harvest farther down the line. And that tends to make for less ripe, less complex wines. It's actually kind of lucky that you do have Cote Chalonais being geographically south of Bonne and Nui, because if you had the same elevation that you had in Chalonais in either one of those places but yeah, especially not, nui you might not be able to really get anything to well i don't know if they can do it in chablis they might be able to do it but it wouldn't be as high but quality it w- yeah it yeah. would not be the expression that we have today exactly it would arguably be worse yes and also uh the vineyards of the coach chalonais tend to have less easterly aspects mm. on the slopes so that's another knock in terms of the sun exposure this does have the only village appellation for Aligote in all of Burgundy, oh, yeah. which is Buzeron. I mm. believe that's how you pronounce this. Mm-hmm. Um, so we mentioned uh, as well the Cremant de Bourgogne earlier, the sparkling wine. This is going to be primarily coming from the Cote Chalonais, particularly, particularly in the village of Ruli. Mm-hmm. My, my favorite. Yes. So this is like, maybe you could say this is the more experimental subregion of yeah. Burgundy. Well, and the thing, especially with uh, Cremante Borgogna, you do want it to be that cooler, longer ripening season. So mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense that this would be here. Yeah. Yeah. And just to finish off, unless you had anything else for the Cote yeah, Chalonais, please. we have the Bourgogne Cote Chalonais. So uh, this is the regional appellation for the Cote Chalonais. So if you see that, it can come from anywhere within the Cote Chalonais delineation. Yeah. And that would include like Mercury, Givry, and Montagny, if yes. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are like 13 soil types in between all those places. So the thing is, you know, we say that this is a lesser quality area, but we are talking about the most prestigious wines in the world when we say lesser. So this place still is going to be producing amazing stuff that is very much so worth your time. But probably at a little bit, at least more affordable price point. Exactly. Exactly. That's I mean, that's why, you know, I'm saying don't sleep on it. Mm -hmm. Just, you know know that the sky's the limit you know yeah <laughs> about how uh, how much you can charge people <laughs> <laughs> anywho uh so you are going to get some subtle oaking in chalonais but you're going to get more along the lines of ripe tree fruits from the chardonnays still going to get a lot of good like dried strawberry cherry from the pinot noir earthen forest and the tannins are going to be a bit more suede like mm-hmm. uh from these places but that's all i really have to say about chalonais Next up, we have Maconnet, or as it is sometimes referred to, Macon. What can you tell me about this place? So most southerly region in Burgundy. This is going to be overall a little bit flatter, but you still have some uh, very intense uh, sun trap areas, particularly in Pouli Fuis. Again, so sorry for my French. Oh, uh, no, that's, that's actually much better than I've ever done for that one. I've, I've been like, I've called it Pouille Fousse and stuff uh, like that. Pouille Fouisse. Yes, uh, Pouille Fume, not to be confused with that, which is in the Loire Valley and is Sauvignon Blanc. I think of Sauvignon Blanc tends to have a stronger nose, so stronger fumes, if that helps you. But uh, Pouille Fouisse 
is going to be the most famous climat here. And again, this acts as essentially a sun trap. So the grapes are going to come from slopes of a little mountain range called the Roche de Solutre. These are going to be limestone soils, and it kind of acts as a natural amphitheater. That means the sun trap aspect that I mentioned earlier really funnels the sun's rays. Mm -hmm. So overall, the Mackinac region is going to have a much richer, riper style Chardonnay just from being warmer, from being farther south of the rest of Burgundy. But here in Pouli-Fouis in particular, this really intense sun exposure is going to give you very ripe Chardonnay. This can start to get into those tropical fruit flavors. There's a lot of oaking that's often going to be used. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, I know I said this earlier in the episode, but remember, California did not invent barrel aging and fermentation of Chardonnays. This came from Burgundy. Uh, Malolactic conversion came from Burgundy. All these fancy premium Chardonnay techniques did come from Burgundy originally, and particularly here in the Macanay, there's a lot more complexity and stuff added to the Chardonnay because it can handle Mm -hmm. this more invasive winemaking i guess i'll say maybe invasive is the wrong word but uh hands-on maybe hands-on yeah but yeah so that's kind of the macanay from a stylistic standpoint macon village as i said earlier is going to be kind of the regional appellation you can also have uh, just macon which is going to be the very base level mm-hmm. macon village is going to be the wines can be from grapes that were from each of the village delineations in the macon So these are going to be wines that typically are pretty good value for the money that you're going to spend on them. They're fantastically popular, too. Yeah, they're going to be that more, again, richer, riper style that I think we're a little bit more used to Mm -hmm. here in the new world. Um, You know, I would say if you want to get into Burgundy and you're a little bit scared of the austerity of Chablis, maybe start here and then work your way farther north. Yeah. Because as a comparison, you know, when you're looking at Chablis, again, you're looking at flinty, you're looking Mm -hmm. at floral, you're looking at mineral, whereas this place, you're looking at ripe stone fruits, you're looking at, you know, your peaches, your your pears, uh, honeysuckle, citrus peel, wild herbs, a little bit more approachable if if that austerity isn't something that you particularly look forward to. Yes. Or feel you have a palate language for. Unless you're like me and you're like, ooh. It tastes like acid and and flint. Throw it at me. I feel like I'm spelunking. (laughs) (laughs) I hate, you know. Hey, it's it's a vibe. Yeah. Oh, man, that would actually be a fantastic, like, it's a Western label, but it would be for a very old world palette where it's just called spelunking. And so it's like white (laughs) flowers on the edges of a canyon, and the person's just like spelunking downward. I'm sold. Yeah, no, and at the bottom, you could see, like, the glow of a liquid, like, little sparkles, and as though they were stars. Maybe it could be, like, embossed foil or something. Somebody hire me to make that label, <laughs> God. <laughs> His commissions are open. Hey, well, hopefully. I have two major projects that I have to get done. Uh, but after those, you know, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, anywho. Maconay, the Macon Villages, definitely worth trying, especially mm-hmm. if you are a little bit more familiar with that more Western style of winemaking, yeah. but you're wanting to expand. Yeah. So now we've talked about all of these different regions. We have Chablis, amazing Chardonnays. We have Cote d'Or with these fantastic Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays that are very austere and bold, down to the Chalonnay, which is a great starting point, or uh, Maconay, which again, great starting point but slightly different profile. 
And that separation, those different soil types and terroirs and their expressions are what makes us so incredibly excited about this region. We hope that through talking about all of this, we've maybe inspired you to want to try some of those. Yes. So if you were inspired or if you have any questions, please send us a message on either Instagram or Twitter at LaidbackLush. Please do give us a follow. Um, what are yes. we going to talk about next time? Well, I know we had talked about diving more into the history of Burgundy, so I guess we could do that. So next time, we're probably going to be getting a little bit more in-depth into the history. If that is something that you guys are looking forward to, please let us know. And we'll try to stay in the wine history, but it is very difficult with this region because so much was political. Mm -hmm. um, it was its own nation at one point. Yeah. Um, and it's been conquered over and over and over again. And just so many different things ended up happening. And then we I, we we didn't even discuss what happened during the French Revolution. Yeah. Well, and potentially this region, had it not been for a certain duke, would have never started growing Pinot Noir and would have stuck with Gamay. Yeah. And so. then there was the other guy who was just like, by the way, Gamay is bad for your health. So I know, that's what I'm do. talking about. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. 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 He, he banned it. <laughs> so he relegated it to Beaujolais. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You gotta love that. That's, I mean, that's a little petty, but I almost said petite. We've been talking wine labels too much. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's seeping into my brain. It's in there. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much. Um, maybe we'll, I'll even bring a Cremant de Bourgogne next time so that we can try that out. It is very hot in Richmond right now. Yes. Uh, oh my we, God. we have gotten the worst heat waves ever. So I think a nice sparkling wine might be the way to go. Yeah. Um, but, anyways, thank you guys so much for joining us. We appreciate your listens, as well as all of the clicks that you can put on our sites. Um, <laughs> but again, uh, if you have any questions, please reach out to us. We love to hear from you. And I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. And this has been Laidback Lush. Ding! Clink! We, we don't have glasses, so, uh, <laughs> cheers. so cheers. Oh, goodness.